Good morning. As Austin mentioned, my name's Brant. I'm one of the elders here. It's an honor to bring the word to us this morning. Uh, though we're no longer in the book of Ezra, uh, there's still names that have to be read. And I'm thankful that I get names like John and Elizabeth. Uh, we all know that feeling when it's our turn to read the Bible and you get to a name you don't know how to pronounce. Uh, now I feel like Brian is watching over my shoulder waiting for me to mess up every time I get to a name. He said them so well. And uh, Austin's voice dropped to about a whisper when he got to his names last week. So um, I am certain I would not read the names as well as Brian did. What about you? What are you certain about? If a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, classmate came to you and asked you, what are you absolutely certain about in life? How would you respond? Are you certain about your career? Are you certain about retirement? Are you certain about your health? If we think about it for a while, we're not certain about much. We could lose our jobs. Some of us have. Our 401k could go to zero. We don't know what's going to happen with our health tomorrow. Some of us are suffering here today. Taking it a, a step further, what are you certain about when it comes to Jesus? Or is there doubt in your heart this morning about the things concerning Jesus? Even as believers, if we're honest, we go through seasons of doubt, questions, unbelief. It's natural, but it's not a virtue. But what we'll see today is that we can be certain about Jesus. In fact, God wants us to be certain. Our text this morning is going to be Luke verses 1 to 25. I'm going to call the ushers forward at this point. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. Feel free to keep these Bibles. They are yours if you want them and do not have one. We're going to start in verses 1 to 4 this morning. Uh, but before we read the scripture, I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Luke. We thank you for a time to remember the birth of Jesus and not just his birth, but why he came, what he came to accomplish, our salvation, that Jesus being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and became a man in this broken world. He came to the world he created, but a world that did not know him and rejected him. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that by the Spirit you help us to hear what your word says and to obey what it teaches. Transform us, Lord, into your image. We pray these things, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Luke 1, we're going to, read verse, we're going to start in verses 1 to 4. And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in, most conse in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So let's start with the author. Luke's name is not 
in the opening verses, but tradition unanimously affirms that Luke is the author of this book. Luke was a close companion to Paul, and the book of Acts tells us that he went on Paul with many of his missionary trips. He was even referred to as the beloved physician. So Luke is the author of this gospel of Jesus. What we see in these opening four verses is how Luke wrote what he wrote, how did he come to the content of this gospel, and why he wrote it. So we want to answer those two questions in the next moments. How did he write it and why? Luke was a historian. Notice what it says, that he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. He didn't look at bits and pieces. He carefully investigated everything from the beginning with precision and accuracy. We're also told that what he got, his content about Jesus, the life of Jesus, the gospel, was handed down to him from eyewitnesses. Not eyewitnesses who saw bits and pieces, but eyewitnesses from the beginning. That word is in there twice, from the beginning. He carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And his eyewitnesses were those who saw everything from the beginning. You know that person who watches the last five minutes of the game and then tells you they watched the entire game or they watched the highlights? That's not what Luke was doing. He was not talking to people who saw Jesus for five minutes, but those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning, who saw everything. They're also described as servants of the word. So Luke's gospel came to him from eyewitnesses and Luke himself carefully with precision investigated everything from the beginning. Now, why did he write the gospel? What is the purpose of him writing this gospel? He says in verse 4, so that Theophilus might know the exact truth concerning the things you have been taught. There's several Greek words for the word know, and the word used here is a word that describes a full knowledge, to know fully. If you use the ESV, it translates this word with certainty, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There's some debate over who this Theophilus is, but the phrase most excellent tells us that he was probably of some sort of nobility. But even more, perhaps he was not certain about what he was taught about Jesus. Perhaps there was some doubt. Luke wants that gone. He wants him to know, to have certainty about everything that he was taught. What was he taught? It uses this phrase, the things, the things twice, an account of the things accomplished, so that you may know the exact truth about the things to us, it seems very vague, but to Theophilus, it would have been very clear. And if we took the next hour to read the entire book of Luke, we would know what the things are. But he makes it very easy for us because Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And listening, listen to the first verse in the book of Acts. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the things 
that he wants Theophilus to be certain about is all that Jesus began to do and teach, namely the gospel. All that Jesus accomplished or fulfilled. So Luke wants Theophilus to be certain about Jesus. But how can, how can he be certain? What gives us certainty about Jesus? Is it experience? Is it knowledge? Let's keep reading. Verses 5 to 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blameless in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now what happened, that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, what does certainty about Jesus have to do with this announcement about a baby who will be born who is not Jesus, who is John. What's the connection there? Well, what we'll see today, what our takeaway is, is that God wants us to have certainty about Jesus because he is faithful to his people and his promises. It's not just that we can be certain. God wants us to be certain. This is good news for us. God doesn't want us living in doubt 
in fear, not knowing. He wants us to know that we can trust the words concerning his son. And our certainty rests not on ourselves, but on God's faithfulness. Let's look at this story in more detail. So we can see God being faithful to his people and his promises. Luke starts with the setting. He tells us this, these things are taking place in the days of Herod. Herod was king of Judea, though he was not Jewish. So Israel has a non-Jewish king presiding over them. This is important because they're waiting for the king of Israel. The Messiah, the Christ, would be one who would come from their own people. This is not Herod. Even more, Herod, although known for his great accomplishments in architecture and building, was a maniac. He murdered members of his own family out of paranoia that he would lose his throne. Murdered members of his own family because he didn't want to lose his kingship. Even worse, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, when he found out that one was born, Jesus, who was king of the Jews, he murdered any child, any boy, two years and under. This is who the people of Israel are dealing with right now as their king. And it's been 400 years since God has spoken through a prophet. 400 years since they have heard a word from God through a prophet. To put that in perspective, it's been 401 years since we celebrated the first Thanksgiving. It's been a long time. And we've seen other other stories in the scriptures where the people of Israel are waiting, longing, hoping for deliverance. So the people of God are under Roman rule. There's a non-Jewish king ruling over them who's a tyrant and paranoid. But God is working. In the midst of all this, God is working, fulfilling his plan. Then Luke introduces us to this married couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. He describes that they're both righteous. They walk blamelessly. Now, what does this mean and what doesn't it mean? This is important for us to understand. It doesn't mean that they were perfect. It doesn't mean they never sinned. As we read, there was a moment where Zacharias had unbelief. What it does mean is that they trust in the Lord. They are living by faith in the promise that God is going to send the Redeemer. And their faith is witnessed by their devotion and their obedience to the Lord. Good works always flow. Obedience always comes from a heart that is living by faith in the promises of God. Then the conflict is introduced. This word but in verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. In this culture, barrenness was a sign of a curse from God. There must be some sin, something wrong that you don't have children. Listen to how one commentator states this. To the Jew... Childlessness was the worst of all bereavements. It implied 
at least they thought so, the divine displeasure, while it effectually cut them off from any personal share in those cherished messianic hopes. Now that's not true, but that's what the culture believed. Can you imagine that? You don't have kids, you are cut off from the promise, the cherished messianic hopes. That's the situation that Elizabeth and Zacharias are in. But notice the connection between their faith and their circumstances. They're still living by faith. This barrenness is not a result of sin. They're righteous. They're living by faith. They're obedient to all the commands of God. And despite years, they're both advanced in years. So, so despite decades of not having children, shamed by the culture, being told that they are cut off from the messianic hopes, they're still living by faith in the promises of God. They believe that he is faithful to his people and his promises. Now, it's worth noting here because many of us have experienced this, that this word barren could mean that they also miscarried. I say this because this is real and many of us have experienced this. And we need to know the women in Scripture sympathize. They understand. God knows. And he loves us. And he cares for us. These things happening isn't always a sign that we've done something wrong. That there was some sin. I hope that that brings us great comfort today. So not only, we, we have the setting, all right? We have the characters and we have the conflict. Now we learn about their family history. They're, they're a part of the priestly line. They come from Aaron, who served with Moses as high priest back in the book of, of, of Exodus. We're told that Zacharias serves in the division of Abijah. We're not going to go into detail here, but there were 24 divisions, and each division would serve at the temple one week twice a year. So a total of two weeks, Zacharias would go to the temple to do his priestly service. But then the text tells us he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple and burn the incense offering. This is huge. We don't see it here, but there were thousands of priests. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to actually get chosen to go into the temple. So Zechariah seemingly would have never done this before. Never would have done this before. And he's chosen to go into the temple where the presence of God, the glory of God dwells for the people of Israel and burn incense. Here's what would happen according to one commentator. In the afternoon sacrifice, the incense was last. The assigned priest, Zechariah, and two assistants carried burning coals from the great altar into the chamber of the holy place to burn incense on the altar of incense made of gold-plated wood and located in the center of the room before the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place. The assistants then withdrew, leaving the priest alone in the sanctuary 
when he would lay the incense on the coals at the signal of the presiding priest and prostrate himself in prayer. Can you imagine what he must be feeling right now? And as he's praying, the people of God are outside praying, it says. The whole multitude of people, meaning Israel, are praying. What are they praying for? What is Zechariah in the temple prostrating himself in prayer for? No doubt, him and his wife have prayed for years for children. But in the temple and the people outside, they're likely praying for the redemption of Israel. They're praying for God to come. They're in bondage. They want to be delivered. They're longing for redemption. What happens next as he's performing his duties, an angel appears. The text tells us he's gripped by fear. We can imagine just standing there. He's never been in the temple. He's in the temple and an angel shows up. What does it mean? Why is he here? What's he going to say? Notice how he responds. The angel, don't be afraid. What words of comfort that would have been for Zacharias. No earthly analogy does here, really, because we're dealing with God. But if you work in corporate America, like I do, this would be like being asked, you know, if you work for a company, two, three, four thousand people, to go and stand before the CEO for the first time and present some big project. You'd be excited fearful, you step in and the CEO says, relax, don't be afraid. Zechariah, don't be afraid. Your petition has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. No doubt for a son, but also for the redemption of Israel. God has heard their prayers. They're going to rejoice. Of course they will. It's been decades without children. Now he's told they're going to have a child. You will rejoice, the angel says. But not just you and your wife. Many, many are going to rejoice at the birth of this child. Why? Notice in this text five times, he will. Why will many rejoice? Why will you rejoice at the birth of this child? Because he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. We've never heard of that in the scripture. A baby in the womb being filled with the Spirit of God. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him. That is the Lord. Luke is quoting Malachi here. And not just any part of Malachi. The last verse in Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet that God spoke through in the last 400 years. So, again... They haven't heard from anybody. Now an angel appears and he quotes 
the last verse, which is the last promise in the Old Testament. And listen to what Malachi says. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Why will they rejoice? Because he's going to be the fulfillment of this promise. Luke is linking the last promise in the Old Testament with the first promise in the New Testament. This baby is going to be the one who gets everybody ready for the Lord to come. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of the great promise that God himself would come and redeem and deliver his people. Zacharias must be out of his mind right now. I mean, he just entered the temple to burn incense, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and now an angel is standing in front of him telling him he's going to have a baby. And not just any baby, a baby who's going to fulfill this promise in Zechariah, which no doubt Zechariah would have known and been familiar with. He would have known this verse, this promise, because him and his wife, they're living by faith. They're trusting the promises of God. At this point, may I remind us that this is real. Remember, Luke carefully investigated everything from the beginning. How does Zacharias respond? How can I be certain? I'm old. My wife is old. We can't possibly have kids anymore. Zacharias and Elizabeth, not only the worst of all bereavements, grief, but hopelessness. They're past the point of childbearing. How can I be certain? Well, Gabriel gives him an answer. I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. And he has sent me to speak this good news to you. You want to know how you could be certain? Because God said so. You can be certain because God promises that you're going to have a child. And God always, always fulfills his promises. He never lies. Indeed, he cannot lie. There's times where my son will ask me for something. All right. As parents, we know this. You can have a candy after you eat your dinner. Well, Sometimes I'll tell my son, this candy's yours. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you get in trouble. Doesn't matter if you don't eat your dinner. This is yours, I promise. Unconditional. Then he asked me again, Daddy, can I have that chocolate? Buddy, it's yours. You just need to wait. Keeps asking, Daddy, can I have that chocolate? Yes, buddy, it's yours. Why does he keep asking? Maybe he's not certain. Will dad be true to his word? Well, unfortunately, I'm not always true to my word. I'm still in the process of becoming more like Jesus. But God always 
always does what he says he will do. Then Gabriel gives him a sign. You want to be certain? You're going to be mute. You won't be able to speak. Until the day these things take place. Now, as we're talking about certainty, that God wants us to be certain, may this be a reminder to us. This is not the norm in Scripture, but there are certainly times where, where believers are disciplined, rebuked for unbelief. Why? Because God wants us to be certain. We can trust him and take him at his word. We can trust him. So Zechariah is uncertain. But notice, notice what the angel says. It's not Zacharias, because of your unbelief, these things will no longer take place. No. No, no, no. Zacharias, despite your unbelief, these things will take place. That's how you can be certain. God will be faithful. Notice what he says. You will be unable to speak because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. This promise will happen. You can count on it. At this point, the people of Israel were told, they're outside. Where is Zacharias? They're wondering. People have died in the temple for not doing what the Lord required. Where is he? Then he walks out. Maybe by the sheer look on his face. I mean, what would you do? What? He's waving his hands. Can't talk. He cannot share this good news with the people of Israel. But they know, just by how he comes out, what he's doing, that he had seen a vision. Something happened. But they don't know what. He can't tell them. Not only that, he can't even tell his wife. Can you imagine? And we're told that he goes home, his service ends, and she conceives. But though he cannot tell her, she knows God has looked on her with favor. She knows, despite barrenness, grief, hopelessness, shame from a culture, God had been faithful to her. God had been faithful. She knows he has looked on her with favor. So what does this all mean? What, what does this have to do with us? What does this mean concerning the things of Jesus? Again, God wants us to be certain about Jesus because he is faithful to his people and his promises. We see God being faithful in this story to his people, starting with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Here's a husband and wife devoted to the Lord, living by faith, walking blamelessly in his commandments, and he has heard their prayer, and they will conceive a son. 
Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Doesn't mean every single prayer we pray for is answered the way we want it to. But that is a promise that we can count on. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. No doubt, Zechariah and Elizabeth were crying out. No doubt the people of Israel are crying out under bondage, under Roman rule, waiting for deliverance. We see God being faithful to the people of Israel. They're here in this text. They're outside praying. They're praying for the redemption of Israel. It's been 400 years since they've heard from God. They are hopeless, wanting to be delivered. And they're praying for it. They know God is faithful. That's why there's a remnant of people still praying, living by faith. Even though it's been years since they've heard from the Lord. Remember Brian's sermon earlier in Ezra? God's faithfulness fuels our faithfulness. Zechariah and Elizabeth, the people of Israel, they're faithful. They're living faithfully because they believe that God is faithful. And even when Zechariah asks for certainty, when he's uncertain, God is still faithful to his people. Why? How is it that God is faithful to his people? even when we're unfaithful. It's because God is faithful to his promises. God is always faithful and true to his word. There's two things Austin mentioned in his sermon last week that that are helpful for this. One, he told us that the people could not purify themselves. They intermingled in marriages and they could not purify themselves. And he said this, they are eagerly awaiting for the redemption of for the Redeemer to come. And then he, he made a note of Malachi, which we said has been the last book of the Old Testament. And Austin mentioned that Malachi promises that the Lord himself will come. But before the Lord comes, the messenger's going to come. And he's going to get everybody ready. He's going to prepare the people for the Lord to come. And this announcement of the birth of John is the fulfillment of that promise. God is being faithful to his promises. That's why Luke starts here. He starts here because Theophilus would have seen this. Here's Theophilus, a man who might be doubting, who's not certain. And right off the bat, as he opens up this book and starts reading from Luke, I want you to be certain, Theophilus. And here he's introduced to a man who's uncertain, rebuked for his uncertainty, and then sees God being faithful to his promise. You will have a child, and it ends, his wife conceived. God is faithful to his people and his promises. So what does this mean for us today as we follow Jesus? What does all this mean for us? Well, one, we can be certain about Jesus. In fact, God wants us to be certain about Jesus. 
We have greater revelation. We have the whole Bible that we can see God being faithful all throughout the scriptures from the promise back in the garden until today that he's been faithful to his people and his promises. So where might you be struggling with uncertainty today? Where might we need to confess of unbelief in the promises of God? Perhaps forgiveness. We can all struggle with that. I don't feel forgiven, so I must not be forgiven. Does our forgiveness rely on how we feel or on God's promise that he has removed our transgressions as far as the east is from the west? That our sins were placed upon Jesus, dealt with in one moment of time on the cross. And that when we confess our sins, he is faithful, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Perhaps in suffering, are are we certain that in our suffering, God is working all things for good? Yes, we can be faithful. God is faithful and we see this. Even in the suffering of Christ, God was faithful and he came out alive. Second application, as we celebrate this Advent season, let us have certainty concerning what we've been taught about Christ and let us be certain that he is coming again. It's been 2,000 years. We're still waiting We are eagerly waiting for the Lord to come and take us home where we will see him and become like him. Where all things will be made new. Are you certain about that? Our living will show it. Let us live with certainty that Jesus is coming again. So this Advent season... May we have certainty concerning all the things of Jesus, his coming into the world, his miraculous virgin birth, his fully obedient life never sinned, his death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection, all the things that we've been taught. Let us have certainty because God is faithful to his people and he's faithful to his promises. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for when we are uncertain. Uncertain concerning your word. Our creator, our God, our father who cannot lie, who never breaks his promises. Father, this Advent season as we think and meditate and celebrate the glories of Jesus, the birth of Christ, Let us be reminded of your faithfulness, that you indeed sent the Redeemer and that he is indeed coming again for us. Let our certainty, our trust in you be so attractive to the world that that they want the peace and the joy we have. And with certainty, let us boldly proclaim Christ to others. In the name of Jesus, amen. May the Lord bless and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you.